0: You are listening to Conversations at the Cohen Center, a space for intellectual engagement, interdisciplinary collaboration, and a vibrant graduate community at James Madison University. Due to the pandemic, this year's podcasts have been conducted remotely over video communication software. The road leading to this election has been tumultuous and conflicting. Even from the very first moment that Donald Trump was declared president, the gears began turning in the Democratic machine to dethrone the president in the next election. Who would become the next nominee from the Democratic Party? A contested primary season was pretty much declared closed when Joe Biden swept Super Tuesday after winning South Carolina, among other states. Super Tuesday also saw the suspension of campaigns by Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar, and a few weeks later, Bernie Sanders. Black people in South Carolina propelled Joe Biden to his victory of the nomination, but does this consolidation of black people in one state represent the galvanization of an entire group of people that have represented throughout the country? We chose this topic because of the temporal proximity of the election and the way that black voices have been cam- campaigned towards as well as utilized campaign towards non-black voters. It is important to remember to elevate black voices and experiences, but we must also understand that black voices are not homogenous. There are many experiences that do not align with the standard black narrative that has been presented by the media. We must also state before we go forward that there is no black person speaking on this podcast. So if we do present anything that is incorrect, we do welcome correction. So this is gonna be a little bit of a roundtable discussion here. Um, we're going to introduce ourselves here. So my name is William Ronaldo. Um, I am a first year in the graduate program in the uh, School of Communications here at JMU. Uh, I am focused on environmental advocacy and uh, I am not really certain what I want to do after after I am done with the, the graduate program. But the article that I focused on for this was The Afrocentric Idea and the Cultural Turn in Intercultural Communication Studies by Reynaldo Anderson. So basically this article is about, uh, well, the Afrocentric Idea, which is a theoretical perspective that focuses on the agency of um, African people. And so Anderson is uh, focusing on Asante and his work in the 1970s and 80s that would uh, foreshadow and frame the debates uh, that would uh, in communications, uh, but also in education, sociology, literary and cultural studies um, into the 1990s and even into the 21st century. Um, So, this piece itself uh, focuses on many ways in which the Afrocentric idea is seen. So, I'm going to be focused primarily on the religion aspect uh, later on when we do get into the bulk of what we speak about. So, next I would like to introduce our next speaker. Hi, my name is
1: Christopher Samuel. I am a second year grad student at James Madison. Like Will, I am an environmental, I'm majoring in environmental communication. Um, my research interests align in the axis of race, religion, and psychoanalysis. I hope to get a PhD afterwards to focus on the ways that Afro-pessimism and theology indicate a certain way of thinking about the world and how we ought to relate to it. The piece I did in relation to this roundtable conversation for today I read uh, Intellectual Intellectual Dislocation, Applying Analytic Afrocentricity to Narratives of Identity by Asante. This article kind of aligns with what Will was talking about in terms of how the need to return to uh, an idea of Afrocentrism and to think about the ways that African agenda capacity ought to look like. Uh, I also couple this with Frank Woolerson's book called Afro Pessimism and how he Understands the nature of being and also grammar when talking about black life
2: Uh, My name is Leah Tripp. I am a first-year graduate student in the communication and advocacy program here at JMU I am in the strategic track and I hope to um, work in the nonprofit world post-grad. Um, hopefully in the realm of advocating for um, migrant farm workers and rights and justice in that realm, I will be talking about the problem of race in public address research by Eric Watts. Um, This article talks a lot about the universalizing effects regarding race that happen in public address and politics um, and kind of the universalization that happens when we allow um, really just white imperial powers to uh, lead the conversation on race rather than giving that voice and agency to people who actually experience those things in their everyday lives.
0: So the way that this podcast is structured is that we each have come up with a question that we wish to pose based upon the readings that we did. Starting us off is going to be Leah with her question.
2: So the question that I have for this conversation um, actually pulls on Asante's piece um, that I think can be related to the stuff that I read about um, in Watts's article. So my question is, how have we seen sentinel statements postulated by those in leadership and by marginalized groups in regards to the upcoming election? Um, Now, before we answer this question, I feel like it might be important to kind of situate ourselves regarding what a sentinel statement is. So sentinel statements, according to Asante, are statements that signal a text's location during the earliest parts of an analysis. Um, So he gives an example um, of an African-American author introducing his theme with the statement, Harvard is my home. Um, And what this tells us is not that the person has necessarily abandoned the idea of Africa or African culture, but it means that the potential for abandonment appears early in the text. So I kind of want us to talk about in the presidential debates, how have we seen leaders, specifically Joe Biden and Donald Trump, uh, utilize sentinel statements and kind of trigger that idea of the propensity for abandonment. So I felt like the first place to start off, at least when I was reading about sentinel statements and dislocation and some of that stuff that Watts was talking about as well, um, a good place to start was in the most recent debate. Donald Trump stated that um, he had done the most for the African American community since Abraham Lincoln. Now despite the factual errors in this statement, um, it also tells us just a lot about the idea of dislocation and situating things from the narrative of voice of imperial powers. So one, Trump is saying he's done the most since for black people since Lincoln which first of all collapses and kind of universalizes the black experience meaning that it's kind of like this just this monolith that's been going on since Lincoln um, rather than kind of talking about the diversity Of that experience but then also you've got Donald Trump talking about when he's talking about things that have been done for black people he situates it around the figure of Abraham Lincoln rather than situating it around um, black activists who have done things for the community throughout the years and so when we dislocate to that time in the American past that's right after the Civil War we're still hinging this narrative on the idea of slavery and of that time period and we're making the white man, the hero, and still asking black people who are watching Trump who, you know, he's trying to get support from or groups that he's trying to get support from to base their experience on this idea of, I am akin to Lincoln, the man who quote unquote frees you from slavery, a time in which you were still dislocated from African history and from that situating. Um, So I think that that's kind of a good jumping off point for that.
1: I also think in relation to that process dislocation in which he uh, uses the analogy of him being to Lincoln that he has done just as much. It does what it does the very thing that Sante pushes back on, which is that it lacks a theoretical frame to understand. The matrix of what that reality was really like. And that is that Lincoln did not necessarily care about black folks, but rather care about the economic incentive and the economic or the economy that was being fractured because of civil unrest that was taking place on plantations that caused the North and South to be divided. It was not so much they cared about black folks per se, but the economic uh fungibility of blackness that can be leveraged in the same manner that Trump is using, and even Biden uses black life to leverage. This type of conversation in which, for example, like Trump talking about how he's able to offer more jobs to black folks or how Biden able to provide better access to healthcare for black communities. All these things is not so much because they care about black life, but rather to sustain and to maintain their economy and also sovereignty within this imperial position of being president. Mm-hmm. It's kind of how I look at your analysis of that question as well
0: and also like on asante's idea of afrocentrism there is absolutely no agency within placing lincoln as the the figure on which all the hopes and dreams are supposed to rest upon just another person to appear as a savior and so trump is presenting himself as a savior and in some way uh, biden is as well but not to the extent as literally <laughs> saying that he is the savior so in also kind of relation
1: to what Leo was talking about in regards to Lincoln, I think what kind of calcifies the mantra of the right currently, or at least Trump's right, is make America great again. And what that simple statement does is that it brings us back to that moment, or at least for me, it brings us back to kind of the historical points in American history in which America's economy was flourishing, in which society was quote-unquote thriving, Uh, And that there was was peace domestically on the lands uh, or on the American soil. But all those, like, type of kind of enunciations are one that goes back to my earlier point about Sante how it obfuscates a theoretical analysis of what was happening to people of color, particularly black and brown communities. Like, during time America was great, in which folks were thriving and there was an economic flourishment. That was taking place during times of slavery, during times of genocide, during the share crop era, the reconstruction era, writing, right into Jim Crow. Yeah exactly, and the larger conversation about society and the way that that metric is utilized all mm-hmm. through a consequential framework in which we value the most voices or the one that is not liquidated but rather solid and can be accounted for and also make up a bulk of society which happens to be white folks that make up a bulk of society. Um, which kind of, like I said, obviously it's a larger conversation at hand.
0: Well, on the other hand, uh, we do have Joe Biden, who has a few statements as well that, well, slogans, I should say. So he says, unite for a better America, which does seem to go against the idea of making America great again, but rather that the greatness is in the future. However it does still play into the idea of dislocation because it does take people, says that people are not currently in a space that they can unite with others and create a great America, a good America, a better America. The concept of needing to shift to the person who is being voted in rather than the person who is supposedly going to be voted in needing to shift to everyone else, which I understand that that's a that's a quite a huge thing because like there's so many different groups that have so many different ideas and um, and ways that they would like to go forward. I mean, just like we are uh, liberal or left, and we can't figure out what we uh, uh, we agree on things, but then like we do have arguments on the way in which it should be implemented, and I do think that the. The right does see that as a bit of a, uh, a strength on their part. But also, that's just me ranting a little bit. That's not part of this um, podcast, but um, I'm going to leave it in there. Uh, <laughs> hey. Another one that I want to talk about that Biden has, though, is Restore the Soul of America, which does seem very similar to Make America Great Again. But it also does seem to have this religious undertone or connotation to it. I know, I know how you all identify religiously. I do see the idea of a soul as not truly a thing <laughs> but that, that exists after, but rather, you know, it's our, it's our conscience. It's what we live with. It, it defines who we are, and it does have a tangibility to it. But does the country itself have a tangible soul? How does that work out? And is is that something that does need restoration? Was the soul tarnished? And is there any reason why we should go back to the tarnished soul rather than creating a new soul? Well, I would actually say that I think, I, I think that the ways that Biden
1: kind of encapsulates this idea of soul in the way that you're describing it, from my point of view, it sounds a lot more of a psychic reality that's tied to a particular ideology that... Biden seems to want to project into mm-hmm. the future, right? This idea that there's a possibility for us to redeem America or that there's redemption in, uh, in each individual, and that if we're able to vote for the right individual, we're able to endorse a right social reality. Uh, and I think, or get one step closer. And I think what that does is that it mystifies the birth of the ideology, right? And if you really look back to the creation of America, and if we recognize that America was derived from slavery and genocide, and our ideology finds its roots in that, not through, you know, the realms of religion, but rather through the realms of individual, economic, neoliberal pursuits that found itself through racialization, and how America still is a settler state, then I think then we can kind of start to see that the soul that Biden seeks to create, whether Consciously or unconsciously in a society or the public ceases to endorse is really an affective economy that wants to perfect the ways that we think about what it means to be human. But it requires a certain binary of a non-human and that historically and status quo
0: is non-black or black folks. Mm-hmm. Like we've learned before that binary can also, the human and non-human it stems from the, the colonizer and the colonized yeah. Um, so going, moving forward is is that soul worth restoring if that is where it came from no
1: I I would actually say that any desire to want to pursue to restore the soul or in this case to maintain recreate America to be ethical is one that is skipping the question or screwing the larger question is is America in the position to ever be ethical mm-hmm. uh, and I think it's a reality a lot of folks don't want to take into account because it may mean that all reality would have to shatter
0: for them. Well, as a hegemonic structure, then I would have to say no, especially with the, the way that we maintain our neo-imperialism throughout the world. But it's not just necessarily just the structure of America because that's probably a task that will
1: never be taken. I'm talking more so just a relationship to the concept of politics or the concepts mm. of military support or even the... Tr- quote-unquote trivial ideas of like one-issue voters that are really important more than we realize that our relation to a little symbolic relationship to it through the vote is one that signifies a larger question of what we value in individuals and what we value as kind of how society ought to be run. Well
2: I think too that idea of the restoration of the soul that you guys are talking about I think a lot of that has to do and Will you brought up hegemony I think A lot of that has to do with who we are giving the status of the, like, redeemer. And right now we are still giving the microphone to, and I hate to, like, keep talking about them, but Joe Biden and Donald Trump are standing on the stage holding the microphone, and they are both white men talking about how we are going to save, quote, unquote, or help and what they've done for black communities. And we're not giving we're still basing things on that colonial idea of America and on those, like, statuses or or ideals of America that, like you said, Chris, are built on a colonial idea. Yeah. Um, and so until we start giving the microphone to other people and kind of undoing some of those structures, then redemption can't happen for, quote-unquote, the American soul, in my mm-hmm. opinion.
0: With the soul, we're going to move on to our next question, and this is the one that I, I came up with So. I question how does religion play a factor in the voting of different racial groups and how do church leaders influence the rhetoric at play? So, when we're speaking about like the restoration of the soul, how is Joe Biden's idea of a soul different from those that are within the black church, particularly liberation theology, people that follow liberation theology, how is that soul different? Is and Joe Biden's idea, at if, if I am to guess as to what his idea of, of Christ is, is a redeemer, someone who comes in and saves after you give up your sin. However, from, a, from Anderson's perspective, it would be that um, Christ for Black people is a vision of an image of suffering, one that has experienced the same trauma that they had been through and that it is necessary to liberate yourself through Christ because he has gone through the same issues. And liberation theology also uh, applies to economic structures in addition to the religious structures. Going back to what I said in the introduction to this, uh, I had spoken about the way that South Carolina had really given Joe Biden that, that absolute push that he needed to edge out everybody else. And that did come with the help of church leaders. So is this is there a certain part that liberation theology does kind of take a back seat to what what may be seen as and we've heard this all throughout the election season, the lesser of two evils. Yeah. Well, I would say I
1: think what is taking place is kind of representative of the larger issue with the church is that Uh, evangelical or typical evangelical christians and their theological approaches to understanding the gospel is one that is centered on treating others as if they were jesus but as you said about liberation theology uh liberation theology focuses on juxtaposing the black particularly black liberation theology juxtaposing the position of the oppressed that being black folks in this case being that similar to that of Christ. James Cone talks about it in The Cross and Lynching Tree,
0: mm-hmm.
1: how uh, in the same manner that Jesus picked up his cross and took it to experience his public persecution, the same manner was that black folks experience when, uh, or same effectual connection that black folks experience when going to the tree to be lynched, is that they're looking at their suffering with a sense of joy and that they'll be reconnected with God. But it's funny because in, this, in black liberation theology, black folks try to... Uh, align themselves to try to find uh, similarities in that of Christ but evangelical Christians are not serving the very person that they were called by Jesus to serve which is that to treat others uh, in positions of need and happens to be a black person in a position of need um, but it also begs the question to uh, Biden's larger role in trying to function or be as you're talking about trying to be this kind of savior mm-hmm. to um, the black community. It's a question of how is it that it's continued to be calcified through an individual that does not align with anything that kind of religious leaders have kind of point, have pointedly pointed out that, and even Trump did in debates. It's like, this man had eight years to improve black life and conditions, but failed to do it, it all matters. And if anything, just globalize the violence of anti-blackness, particularly in the Middle East and the bombing
0: and killing of innocent civilians. Do you think that maybe the fact that like Biden actually does have some sort of religious background to him? But Trump, like he says like that he loves the flag. He, lo- he loves the flag. He loves the Christians. It's a, yeah. great, it's a great Christian flag. We've got it going on. Well, I mean, at least we can say that Biden does attend church and he does have... Well, At I mean, least, like the ability to speak from a, even if it's a relatively distant space, this that he does have the religious experience.
1: Well, I'll say this. Oh, my fault. Yeah, I was to cut you off.
2: I was just going to say that the the problem with that is is like you're viewing that, and I mean I agree with you in that, but we're viewing that from the view of people who tend to lean left, mm-hmm. where from the right, you know, we're they're viewing that as far as, like, Biden attends church. He is, uh, you know, showcasing some of the quote-unquote attributes that we would normally attribute to Christians. However, I think that people from the right are viewing things from more of a, like, purity authoritarian standard of, you know, that question that a lot of Christians talk about, about the lion and the lamb, right? They're viewing Trump as the lion. He's going to protect Christianity. He's going to bring the hammer down and not kind of budge on things that, you know, as we're descending into, you know, moral degradation, as people would claim. So, yes, but also that type of thing isn't really going to attract necessarily Christians because, it's not working for Biden because that's not the type of Christianity or the type of like religious order that they're necessarily looking for
1: And I think Sorry. that I think it's also important to note is that like what you said, right? Uh, Biden attending church trying to perform as if he was Christian mm-hmm. is a very very and maybe a drastic exaggerated analogy, but Historically speaking slave masters went to church mm-hmm. slave masters read the Bible educated about the scripture Right? It's a performance to try to sell to people. And I think that's the issue of when religion plays its part in politics, is that it misses a larger question of how, A, the figure of Christ is supposed to be prefigured or figured in uh, reality. And it also misses all the scriptural points that point towards a disavowal of politics. Because politics, at its core, always tries to commodify religion for capital mm-hmm. gain. Like, that becomes a leverage, another moment of leveraging the, the
0: hope that black folks and other people of color can have in these systems. Yes. They wish to, they wish to portray the idea that the economy bends, bends the knee to Jesus, but Jesus actually bends the knee to the, to the bull market. Yeah, exactly. I, I think the, like the, the, the issue,
1: too, at hand is that, like, we begin to miss the purpose—or the church begins to miss its purpose— of what it's supposed to be serving, and that's the the community. But instead, because it is aligned with uh, political fervor, and because society says if you don't vote, then you're unethical, and they use Jesus as the motive, uh, what we're seeing is a collapsing of church values with political values. And what we're really seeing is that individuals are just very insidious, and the structure allows for that insidiousness to be birthed through black death. So telling off from that conversation of black death uh, and religion, I want to pose this last question to kind of round out this conversation. And that is, how are the tropes regarding race-related matters being articulated through the political system? And the second question, or the follow-up question is, what larger structural theories, if any, are attached to these tropes? So I asked this question, or this two-part question, because A, Asante uh, really does kind of layer throughout the piece this idea of a need for a theoretical approach to understanding the society that we exist in now and to understand uh, agency capacity to be uh, an, uh, an agentic individual then secondly uh, i ask this question because uh one of the watts pieces that we are not talking about um which was the cosmopoliti- cosmopolitanism cosmopolitanism that's the word, thank you Will. And then uh, also my separate book reading of Pessimism by Frank Wilderson, which in which the Watts piece does reference Wilderson's theory of the grammar of suffering. And that is how do we think about the ways that we utilize these tropes in order to evoke a response and how is that response inherently racialized? So the reason why I asked this question is because uh, surprisingly, or not necessarily surprisingly, because it should have been predicted after the whole Grant Thunberg UN speech. The conversation about climate change was really a salient point of conversation or contestation in this past these past two debates between Biden and Trump. And that thesis point was always hampered around this trope of the child or future generations and how we need to protect future generations and society. And it aligns a lot with what I'm doing with my research, with my thesis, um, and that is that that trope is one that I would argue is inherently anti-black. And it's because of the fact that we are now acting on the environment. And it's because we think this impending doom that's taking place in the future, the sentinel statement that's taking place in the future is what's gonna impede on society. But leading up to this point, the communities that have been affected by this have been indigenous communities Mm -hmm. and black communities. They have, Africa has been suffering from massive droughts with lack of support. Flint, Michigan still does not have any clean water treaties have consistently been violated and more importantly when folks are talking about protecting future generations and the child they're thinking about a white individual and not a black and that is where i think these tropes are really being leveraged and really reflecting a fungible a fungibleness to blackness in which we can pick and choose how to talk about black life but it obfuscates a desire
0: that kind of is under is kind of subtle within society. Mm-hmm. Like they sh- they may not be racist, but they sure are anti racist. Yeah, exactly. It just kind of just shows
1: like the very insidiousness of the political debate and also the tropo- or the tropological usage of these terms. Because a lot of times like folks are voting without really interrogating these issues mm-hmm. and these ideas, and what they're really doing is justifying black death more and more. And when you think about the ways that a language is being utilized, it's just, it just signifies something different, right? And that's what and that's important to know. That like, tropes signify they're metaphors or metonymies that signify or take chains of ideas and package it to signify something larger. And when we see with the child with the environmental conversation, is that we're seeing ideas of futurity of civility of economic flourishment of protecting nature and also within all, within all of that is a white kid white family a nuclear family that needs to be protected mm-hmm. uh, it kind of talks about we are talking about like this idea of re-insantiating this western hegemony
0: of uh, control of sovereignty and stuff just like in a uh and the book that I've been reading, uh, Queering Colonial Natal by T.J. Talley, there is uh, quite a bit of speaking about um, securing a Western hegemony through the pressuring on of Western customs um, within, within the Colonial Natal. So Natal was a colony in South Africa in the uh, late 19th century, mid 19th century to late 19th century. And there was a strong mission element to it. So, when I bring up tropes in this case, I mean, I'm speaking about the ways that proper dress and proper speech were impressed onto them, and we do continue to see that as a trope today, whether it be from, not so much from politicians, but rather from I see this more from pundits and people that tend to have more of a hand in culture. So by trying to bring them in, uh, by saying what is a proper dress, what is a proper speech, both in Natal and and in America and other places, We are trying to dissolve the culture and essentially do what is effectively called cultural genocide by destroying the past to pave the way for a white future. But even then, within Queering Colonial Nostal, it is shown that even those that do toe the line and work with the white settlers and follow their rules, they are never seen as part of the true majority they will always be sitting on the outside so this the trope i guess i'm trying to bring up is the idea of paternalism but being in a position where you're never able to actually earn the adoration of your father Mm. Mm, damn
2: um i think that really ties into but i think that really ties into um the idea of what you guys have been talking about, about tropes and collapsing things, you know, we had that infamous statement from Joe Biden about, you know, if you're not, if you don't vote, oh. then you're not black. How the hell have we um, not talked about
1: that yet? Yes. Super racist.
2: <laughs> and so, like, that whole idea of, Will, what you just said, you know, if you don't, first of all, you've got a white man saying, what black identity should or shouldn't be, so that's mm-hmm. already an issue. But then you've also got the thing of okay, well, if I th- like threaten your black identity enough to make you feel like you should vote for me to be that paternalistic figure, okay, then you're going to you're going to say okay, well, I'm staking my black identity in you, Joe Biden. Is Joe Biden even going to, like you said earlier about the eight years of him not doing you know anything? Is Joe Biden even mm-hmm. going to advocate for black lives? Like, is that father ever going to give you the adoration? And the answer is at best,
0: the jury's still out, and at worst, no. So now that we've had some time to discuss our questions uh, that we brought up, uh, we're gonna move into a a segment in which we figure out how to take what we have discussed and apply it to the world and um, just off the top of my head, I'm gonna call it, now that's what I call praxis. And uh, so what can, what can we do? Uh, I think for, from my perspective, you know, just be cognizant, <laughs> like be be situation situationally aware of like what is going around, uh, going on around you, and that your perspective is going to be incredibly different from another person's perspective, especially the life of the life of a thirty-three year old. Uh, straight white male like is going to be incredibly perspective from all the um, intersectional ideas that have gone in and shaped the lives of um, of black people and people of color. I think in terms of praxis
1: because it's important to never isolate theory from praxis, never isolate mm-hmm. practice from theory, but they always should be in a in a symbiosis type of relationship and for me, at least, it's like, I start from that question that I kind of posed to you all earlier. And it's like, if the U.S. was derived from genocide and slavery, how does the maintenance of it ever become ethical or ever can be deemed ethical? And from my point of view, it's like, it can never be ethical, which means that I work, I operate from that type of line of reasoning. So for me, I don't think voting is ethical because I think it risks reproducing the very ideology that we adhere to, even if my vote is a drop uh, within a pool of votes and doesn't really have any significance, it doesn't matter. It's a question of what I want to stand for. Uh, so I think that's the first. is kind of taking individual responsibility for what you choose to align with yourself with. And secondly, I think it's being more involved in the community, become more invested within the grassroots micro movements that are taking place, because. Um, Everything's kind of an assemblage, it feeds off each other, bounces off of each other. So I think giving to the poor, and I hate to uh, try to Christianize it, but, like, borrowing from, like, Jesus' vernacular, like, give to the poor, the blind, the widowers, the widows, the motherless and the fatherless, and that happens, sadly to say, it happens to a lot of people of color that experience that. So yeah, just, like, open your house for those that are in need, give to those that are poor. Uh, and give selflessly, not with the attempt of showing off or being quote unquote woke, and stop taking pictures of your protests. We get it, mm-hmm. like you're woke. Stop posting stuff on Blackout Tuesday. Like we get it.
2: I agree. Um, I guess kind of jumping off from both of you guys, I think Will made a really good point about being aware situationally. Um, so that's definitely something I'm gonna take for these readings from these readings, just using the examples of like sentinel statements and of this idea of universalizing race in a way that removes some of that agency being aware of those things especially um, aware of the fact that they happen on both sides of the aisle and kind of calling those out and recognizing them as they come Um, but then on the other side of that um, tying into what Chris said you know obviously putting that into action you know trying to give to the poor give to those who you know are being underrepresented but also taking that a little bit further and putting those people in positions of power, giving them the microphone so that they, we don't have this override of, you know, redeeming the American soul or make America great again where we're centralizing America, centralizing the entire experience of someone who's a person of color, um, rather than Americanizing that experience. That's going to be really important for me moving forward in this conversation.
0: All right, and, uh, does anybody have any acknowledgements? Like, want to say anything to anybody? Like,
1: <laughs> Uh...
0: Mm. yes hi
1: everybody that's related to me Uh, but also I just make wise choices when it comes to uh, your vote in politics
0: well to you all I I thank you all for doing this podcast with me and uh, whoever is listening we thank you all for uh, for tuning in or you know just putting us on uh, for a little bit so thank you all for listening Thank you for listening to conversations at the Cohen Center. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at, at JMU Cohen Center. If you'd like to get in touch, email us at CohenCenter at JMU.edu. Both our intro and outro music come from the stock library available at anchor.fm.